you enjoy listening to Unlimited Partners, then would you do us a favor? Share the podcast with someone in your network or hop on and write us a review on Apple or Spotify. We really appreciate it. So I think this was one of the big things that made MailChimp successful was we learned to say no pretty quickly. We saw that Oprah had come on and we're like, oh my God, Oprah, it's like, we gotta do everything possible, but we couldn't get there. There was like a time we actually had to get rid of Uber, who was one of our biggest customers, but they weren't, they didn't follow our structure. And we knew that, again, that we can't spend the time on that one when we have millions of other customers. Hey everybody, we're really excited about this conversation. Today, we chat with Jenny Bloom, the former chief financial officer of MailChimp and Zapier, as well as Akash Kanolker, the co-founder of Octane, a usage-based billings platform serving cloud companies. This is a new format for us, and it's one we're really pumped about. Here, we share a research call that we completed using Tegas. So here's the background. We are invested in Akasha's company by way of our backing, a seed stage investment fund called Abstraction. They invest in companies that serve the developer communities. Whenever we partner with a fund like Abstraction, I like to share our Tegas subscription with portfolio companies. We ask founders and managers to bring us their most pressing questions, and we shape those questions into expert requests that we send to Tegas. For this conversation, Akash asked me to set up a few calls with leading software as a service CFOs to help improve his understanding of the priorities and mindsets in the finance organizations that his company sells to. Tegas provided a list of 10 excellent individuals, but Jenny's bio just jumped off the page. If there was a hall of fame for software CFOs, then Jenny would be a unanimous first ballot selection. She was the CFO of MailChimp for 14 years and then held the same role at Zapier for six. These are two of the most successful self-funded software companies in history. Last year, Intuit acquired MailChimp for $12 billion and Zapier shocked the world when Sequoia bought shares in the company at a $5 billion price tag. At the time, Zapier was doing over $120 million in recurring revenue, despite only having raised $1.3 million in venture funding. In this discussion, Jenny attributes her team's success to financial education and teaching people to operate with autonomy and ownership. Also, she highlights the importance of saying no to options that aren't in the best long-term interest of the company. We want to extend a special thank you here to Tegas for enabling this conversation and to Akash for being a great founder who makes our partnership fun, but mostly to Jenny Bloom for the time and wisdom she shares with us. Unlimited Partners is not investing advice. The host and members of Unlimited Partners may have a position in the securities discussed. Please do your own research. So now enjoy my conversation with Jenny Bloom and Akash Kanolker. Jenny, I've been looking forward to speaking with you very much. I really appreciate you taking some time for us today. Oh, yeah, no worries. Yeah, I'm not used to going through like somebody else to get to me, but yeah, happy we could chat. You know, it's um, it's one of the services that, that Tegas provides. Like if you would have asked me, like who would, who would an ideal CFO be to speak to in this environment? I'd say, I, I don't know. Is there a CFO that led... Uh, MailChimp and Zapier. Like I actually didn't know your career, and if somebody would have said yes, I would have thought, "Holy cow!" Like 
well, that would be a dream conversation. And so for Tegas to deliver that, um, that like, uh, unknown, um, individual to me is really cool. It's really neat. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that is cool. Um, Akash, or is that, is that you who just joined? Yep. Hey, how are you? That's all? thanks for being hey. here, Akash. Um, so Jenny, um, I, I guess I'll, I'll share a little bit of, I, I think that, um, Daryl has done a great job or, or Daryl's team at, at Tegas from my perspective, in terms of setting this conversation up, would you two mind introducing yourself? And Jenny, I'd, I'd love for you to go first. I mean, your your career, I just have to say, wow, like unbelievable respect oh, for, for MailChimp and Zapier. Um, one of, I, I don't know if it was passed on to you, but one of our, our dear family friends, Danny Schreiber, was an early employee or is an early employee at Zapier. And um, uh, I, I live in Kansas City. I spend a decent amount of time in Columbia, Missouri good friends with people there like Brent, Brent Bishore. Um, so I, and, and, and then when, when MailChimp sold last year and it, I think the market collectively learned just what, what's possible in a, in a self-funded business. Like, I think it's really illustrative of, um, of something that I think is, is, uh, very valuable and top of mind for a lot of people. So thanks for sharing your time. I, I kind of introduced you a little bit for, for you, but I'd, I'd love if you would introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Jenny Bloom. I guess I have like over 35 years of you know finance and accounting experience. Uh, the last 20 years I've spent in SaaS. I was the CFO of Mailchimp for 14 years, from basically the beginning to 2016, and then I was the CFO of Zapier and from 2016 until January of this year. I quote retired, but and I was looking for like some board roles. Um, but along the way in looking for board roles, I have, I've had several people ask me to be their fractional CFO. So right now I'm working with a couple, um, startups and an e-commerce company called thrive cosmetics as their fractional CFO. That's awesome. And Akash, uh, would you mind introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about octane? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first off, you know, thanks for having Thomas. Um, Jenny, great to meet you. I'm, you know, I, I was really impressed by your background. About me, um, I'm Akash. I'm the CEO of Octane. So uh, I think Thomas had mentioned it before, but Octane is a usage-based billing platform. So we're helping B2B SaaS companies operationalize consumption-based pricing and scale it. Uh, we've seen a pretty big shift of SaaS companies moving to this pricing model. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm here here to help really make that transition for lots of software companies. And um, oftentimes, you know, we, we're oftentimes working and selling into uh, the finance orgs. So I'm particularly excited about this call. That's great. Well, uh, the opening question that I wanted to ask um, to Jenny is, I mean, you led finance at two of the most successful, predominantly self-funded software companies in history. What is different about these companies? What what do they do? What low level practice or mindset or culture do they adopt? That um, kind of the, I always say like you focus on the inputs and the outputs take care of themselves. What are some of the inputs that you've observed in companies that are built this way? Yeah, I mean I think you know there's several things. I mean the first thing is is it's a lot of hard work, and you know people think that. Um, you know, it can happen overnight, but it doesn't. I mean, we used to joke that MailChimp was a 10-year overnight 
success. I mean, people thought that we just came out of the blue in like 2014 when actually we've been working on it for 10 years. So it's a lot of hard work and I don't think people realize how hard it is. Um, you know, another thing is like building out a self-service, you know, product-led SaaS company is actually really inexpensive now. So I think the main thing is like both MailChimp and Zapier, we proved out the product before we really started scaling. So like MailChimp, they actually started as the Rocket Science Group, which was a web design company. And they built MailChimp as their side project for a couple customers. And this was like in 2000, but they started the web design company. And it wasn't until 2007 that they looked at MailChimp as like, oh, this can actually pay our salaries and we don't have to do all this web design work. So that's when they actually closed down their web design company and focused on MailChimp. But so it was already profitable before they actually even focused on it. And then um, Zapier, they started with a startup competition at the University of Missouri and then entered uh, Y Combinator. And so they spent their time at Y Combinator and they came out with about 1.3 million in funding, but they lived like very frugally and they actually barely touched that funding. So um, they were able to really build out their product again and really make sure there was a product fit before they started really scaling. Um, I think another thing is like building a lasting company and spending money wisely. You know, both MailChimp and Zapier, the goal was never to IPO or to exit. It was to build a long lasting company and to see how big we could grow it. And, you know, to do this without funding, you need to spend money wisely and you need to build a great culture. You know, in a SaaS company, people are your biggest asset and the biggest cost. So um, to me, it's about spending money on, on your people and making sure that you really hire the right people in the right positions and to really spend the money on building that great culture. And then... I also believe in teaching everybody about finance and so that they will, will spend money wisely. So like at Zapier, we developed several classes, on the basics of finance, what's an income statement, what's a balance sheet, what metrics should you look at? How does things that you spend affect these different things? So we teach people so that then they, they know how, how to spend wisely for the company. So I think that's really important. And then I think lastly, I think I'd say it's like, it's all about staying nimble and, you know, don't put in a ton of processes and procedures, you know, try to automate, you know, as many manual processes uh, as possible. Um, at Zapier, like my accounting team, they were probably half the size of most companies that was our size, but because they automated so much using Zapier, you know, we didn't, we didn't need a lot of people. Yeah, that's a helpful company to be the biggest consumer of your of your own product to 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 streamline those efficiencies. Um, you talked about how you you are doing some fractional CFO work for startups. What are some of the like initial kind of highest priority questions that you ask, or 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 specifically like features of the financial model that you try to have people focus on? Because in the investing that I do, you know, there's there's all sorts of, you know, what's your growth algorithm and, and going through the income statement, your your gross margins, your retentions, CAC and LTV. I'd love 
as somebody who's built these engines, uh, to hear you just kind of talk about like, what are some of the key things that you really try to first prioritize? Well, I think the, the first thing actually is the accounting and making sure the numbers are right. I know like several of the companies I've worked with, it's like, okay, you go in there and you're not starting with good numbers. So you can't build a financial model until you have the right numbers. So I think first it's really cleaning up the books and making sure you have the right history. And then from there you can start um, doing your forecast. And that's all based on, you know, trying to figure out what are the levers in the business? What causes, you know, what are the real metrics to focus on and, you know, what causes revenue to go up and down? It's looking at what are the factors of churn? You know, what makes somebody convert from free to paid? It's all those different factors that you got to look at. It's just digging into data, which sometimes there's a lot of it. I've been really surprised with several of the founders that I've met. They're, they're, technical people, they're product people, they've, they've been line of work and they have a really good insight into what sucks and how to fix it. But they're not always financially engaged, curious, like the, the, the model, the mental model that for me is like a former hedge fund analyst, which is to say like my brain used to functionally be an Excel model. Like they don't, they don't have that. And, 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 and so I'm always curious, like, how do I grow, um, I don't know, like financial curiosity? Like, how do I, how do I make this, uh, like a, a, a form of engagement, um, and, and something of, of like continuous, um, uh, thought process. So I mean, are there, are there tools, are there resources, are there practices that you find that are helpful to just get people thinking in, in a consistently financial framework mindset? Well, like you said, you know, part of what we did at Zapier was, you know, teaching people about the basics of, you know, income statement balance sheet and how metrics affect affect the business. But I think as far as like when going into, you know, a startup, it's really working with the founders and like showing them the spreadsheets. I mean, I remember the first time walking into Mailchimp, I was like, you need a financial model. And they were like, yeah, whatever. And then when I put it down in front of them and showed them, they were like, wow we needed this and they didn't know it. So I think a lot of it is just showing them what it can do and how, when you change variables, how it affects stuff, when they can actually see it and like play with it themselves. That's when I think they really get excited about it. Yeah. I want to make this like a gadget, a toy, a thing that people like want to do. They want, want to explore the financial uh, uh, characteristics of the business. Um, Akash, I'm going to throw it over to you. I think you've got a good list of questions to, to get going on. Yeah, thank you, uh, Thomas. So, Jenny, I think one of the really interesting points you made before was the focus on frugality at MailChimp mm-hmm. and Zapier. And also was really interesting. You folks are really the trailblazers for self-service. I mean, you were doing this in 2002. It's only now starting. We're seeing some pretty significant trends toward self-service. You think there mm-hmm. is a correlation that you had with the frugal, the frugal nature of your business and doing a self-serve, not hiring an army of sales reps, um, just like kind of retro, like looking retrospectively. Do you see that as a correlation? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at, at MailChimp, you know, the thing was build it as easy as possible and make it so a chimp can, can use it. So our thought process was we can't hire a bunch of support people. We don't want to hire salespeople. So we got to put all our focus in the product and make it so, you know, it can, 
people don't need any help with it. Um, one of our biggest competitors was Constant Contact, and they used to, I don't know where how they do it now, but I think they used to have like every person that would sign up would get like a 45 minute to hour call with a support person going through the whole thing. And we had a chat and email team that maybe 50% of customers used and the average you know, ticket time was less than 20 minutes. So it's like our gross margins were so much higher than constant contact just because we made our product simpler. We put the money into the product for people. Gotcha. Like that, that product obsession allowed it. So you could have a really nimble customer success team, a really nimble um, sales team. And it sounds like because you were also doing a lot of automation, um, you know, in the finance and accounting department, you were able to be nimble there too. Um, that is actually kind of springs up my next question, which is, you know, what we've noticed too is as companies are shifting to a self-serve motion or they're introducing a self-serve motion, that automation becomes um, almost an essential requirement. Is that is that something that you noticed that Mailchimp and Zapier, like you literally had to automate everything? Was it possible to even do manually? Well, MailChimp, you know, earlier on, so yes, tried to automate as much as possible, but, um, you know, a lot of tools weren't in the cloud at the time, so that wasn't as possible. At Zapier, yes, I mean, we automated everything. <laughs> so, and again, it's like a lot of the tools are available now. It's like, just look like all the spend management solutions that are out there right now. I mean, that takes a ton of time away from accounting when you can just, you know, put in a solution like that and they're fairly inexpensive. I see. So it's like, it's, it's almost like now what we're seeing in, as trends today, it's like buy the tools, automate the, automate essentially everything. And it seems like, it seems like this trend of product led growth that we're seeing where um, it's all about using the product as the main acquisition channel. What do you think attributes to that trend today? Is it the, the tool, automation tools that are available or is there something more there? Um, I think it's part that, and I think it's, you know, the, the gross margins on product-led is so much higher than enterprise. And, you know, the sale to enterprise is, you know, takes so much longer. It can take, what, 12, 16 months sometimes. And, you know, with product-led, you can get customers right away. Um, I think the problem comes is then, you know, when the product-led, they can't, like, just jump to enterprise. They have to, like, do a slow growth into that market if that's where they want to go. And I think there are people trying to do that. They're trying to figure out how to be product-led, but also have a sales motion that gets the larger customers. I see. So is that like, was that a challenge you ran into at MailChimp and Zapier? Like it was all about self-serve bottoms up uh, and you didn't really tackle the enterprise for that reason? It's not like we didn't tackle them, um, but we, that wasn't our focus. Our focus was a small business owner. And what we did notice was that, like at MailChimp, we we had a lot of tools, but we didn't necessarily market them the right way. So people would think that they would outgrow us, and then they'd have to go to a HubSpot or Mar Marketo. And that wasn't really the case, but because we were marketing towards a small business owner, we didn't necessarily show that we could serve other users, you know, the higher-end users also. Um, so I guess to you know, change gears a bit. Um, I'd love to hear like, what are your general thoughts about building versus buying software solutions today? Yeah. I mean, I am all about buying. I mean, 
it's like there's like I said there's so many good tools out there a lot of them are inexpensive um and yeah it's like why try to build something when some you know there's so many companies out there that have already built it um the only time at Zapier we bought something or we built something was um for revenue recognition because we had we researched a lot of companies, did a lot of demos, and actually even tried a couple tools, but we couldn't get anything to really work. So we had to build that internally. But besides that, I totally believe in buying. Because also when you're a product-led company, you don't want your engineers working on something else. They need to be working on your product. Oh, interesting. So it's, it's like, especially when, you're, uh, when you have this product-led motion in your self-serve, there's a special consideration in the buy over build because you need to be product focused. You need to be product obsessed and having your engineers focus on anything else, but the core competency of your products can prevent you yep. from that objective. Is, is that essentially yep. what you're saying? Yep. Absolutely. And they don't want to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, uh, I mean, we, yeah, we sell a billing solution and it's always like uh, one of the pitches we make, which I mean, engineers often agree is like, we don't want to work on the billing system. We want to work on our right. core competency. So actually, it's really interesting, too, that you mentioned revenue recognition is the one piece that you decided you could not buy. Uh, it's a common, you know, we talked to lots of CFOs and they run into challenges specifically around RevRec. Like, why did you ultimately, uh, what was the, I mean, what was the revenue recognition problems you faced, if you don't mind me asking? And then why did you decide not to ultimately buy? Yeah. Um, so, again, being, you know, self-service product led, we had millions of users, you know, and hundreds of thousands of paying customers. So I think most of the companies, they couldn't handle that amount of data. And I don't think because you have that much data, it's not as clean maybe as if you have more of a sales motion and like you have monthly billing, you know, how do you recognize somebody that's a certain day and then there's a refund and then they get a promo and it just couldn't handle all of the intricacies that we had. So yeah, we had our data team had to build it because like I said, we actually bought one product and we had to just, we had to tell them, no, this doesn't work because it couldn't even get close to what we were doing. Like we had to do a spreadsheet, just check it. And it wasn't even close. I see. So it's like the, the problem. Okay. So the problem, it sounds like, was it scale or it was too specific of a Zapier problem or I guess a mix of both. I think it was a mix of both. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, Zapier obviously has significant, um, is going to have tremendous scale and, uh, you have to, sometimes when you talk, think about buying a product, that could be, that could be a challenge. Um, mm -hmm. one of the interesting things uh, about you, Jenny is, I mean, you, you started at MailChimp early on in 2002. You're there for, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like 14 years. So you saw it, you as a CFO, you saw it through a lot of changes. Um, as a CFO, what were you know what were the different roles and responsibilities that you ran into um, as the company scaled? Yeah, I mean, you know, starting out, I was just like me and three guys. Um, I was their basically their fractional CFO at the time because you know they didn't need somebody for a few years. But um, you know, I started going in you know, once a quarter, once a month, then it got to be, you know, twice a week. And then at some point at like 2009, it's like, okay, we need to decide. I need to come on full time. 
but um, yeah, basically it's like whatever needs to be done. That's what, that's what you do in a startup. So yeah, I was over HR. I was over, you know, the facilities. Um, yeah. All different things. So it's like going to pick up drinks and stuff for the break room. You know, you do a little bit of everything. And then, you know, as the company grows, you hire people. Um, I, I'm a very hands-on person, but yeah, by about 200 people, you hire a controller and that takes away a lot of, you know, the accounting work. And then it becomes more strategy and focusing more on how to drive revenue and more analysis and modeling. And yeah, then lots of meetings with the leadership team. Hmm. I see. Yeah. So it, it, it shifted a lot more to strategy at a certain inflection point. So you said it was like an employment count where it became a, mo- a lot more about strategy or was it like a revenue, yeah, like a me, revenue number? No, I don't think it's a revenue number. It's a ploy, it's employee count because um, you can have high revenue and it has nothing to do with, because um, the accounting side is all based on employees because it's, you know, whether it's expense reimbursements, it's payroll, it's, you know, buying equipment, there's, you know, more space needed for, you know, for when, when there were offices, it was more office space needed. So those all are what affect the finance function, the revenue number. <coughs> it's just a number, right? It doesn't really matter what it is. Interesting. So it's, it's the people that um, end up being a predominant piece of it and not as much. the. I mean, traditionally, we think like of a CFO role, is it it sounds like it's a bit more of cost management or is it more of revenue expansion? Where where do you see so, where do you see, see yourself? So, I guess both yeah, Mailchimp and Zapier, both. Yeah. yeah, you have to do both. You have to um, you have to really do the cost management side. But like I said, a lot of it is teaching employees and teaching your team to do it for you. And then that's when you can spend more time focused on the strategy and pushing revenue. Mm-hmm. So um, going back to, you know, the fact that you ran two fairly successful, you know, part of two fairly successful self-serve companies, one of the common things that we've seen with the product-led growth model is the, mar- the marrying of multiple um, teams. So product, strategy teams, um, finance teams are all working and very collaborative. Is there something particular or special that you've noticed in terms of your experiences at MailChimp and Zapier in which uh, you felt were very effective as you collaborated? Um, like one specific uh, one specific challenge that we, we've personally ran into with uh, other qu- companies is around pricing, like how pricing affects all these different stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear um, how, that, how that kind of went down at both these companies and what was effective and potentially not. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think just overall, the finance function needs to work collaboratively with all the functions. I mean, you have to know what's going on in all parts of the business to know, you know, where everything's good to see the big picture. So I think that's just an ongoing thing. Um, as far as like product and pricing, I was a lot more involved in MailChimp than I was at Zapier, but yeah, it was spent, you know, doing a lot of analysis, spending time with, you know, the leadership team and, you know, spending, we didn't really have product back then was more engineering. So, um, yeah, spending time with the heads of engineering and just trying to figure out, you know, what's the best solution for everybody. Wow. That's interesting. So as a, as a finance person, you were interacting with engineering to strategize. 
Yeah, because we didn't have quote. Pro- I mean, back then they didn't call it. They didn't like say product. It was just engineering. Engineering okay, included gotcha. like design and everything. So it wasn't like it's only been like the what the last five or seven years that's become more pro- product. Engineering becomes product now. Gotcha. But so, yeah, perfect, so, yeah. No, that's okay. And then um, at Zapier, it was more in the marketing function. I of course assisted them. Like I said, did analysis and reviewed analysis, but we also they decided the best thing was to uh, get a consultant in and actually do it for us. So, um, like I said, I reviewed a lot of stuff, but it wasn't as wasn't as involved there. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, do you have any uh, other questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and maybe just kind of uh, continuing with the the line of of like how you connect product conversations to the finance organization. Um, I'm working with a couple of companies that uh, are are currently struggling with this. Um, they have um, mostly self serve uh, uh, product, but the requests that come in uh, end up being uh, pretty pretty specific, pretty pretty customized. We we end up like looking out into the abyss of like, oh shoot, that's a lot of project oriented work that we might find ourselves uh, getting into, but. Uh, how do we say no to the revenue? Um, but how do we execute on that in a coherent way? And, and, and also how do we avoid just an absolute rat's nest of a, of a code base? Um, were there any exercises that you found that were helpful kind of harmonizing the flow, like the, the, the flywheel of getting customer feedback, force ranking priorities, doing that in an automated way, building, pushing, and then, and then iterating again, like just, and, and through the financial lens that you've always had, like, I just, I think that you're really well positioned to talk about that. Yeah. So I'll answer, I think I'm understanding your question. So if I'm not, yeah, please stop me. But so I think this was one of the big things that made MailChimp successful was um, we learned to say no pretty quickly. And, we, you know, people would come with their requests of, you know, the larger customers, you know, we need you to fill out all this stuff and do all this stuff before we'll even talk to you, right? So we went and got the SOC 2. We're like, okay, we have the SOC 2. Here it is. And if you want anything else, sorry. It's like, this is our... This is what we have. This is what we're willing to do. We don't do contracts. We don't do anything special because that takes us away from our customer. Um, we had, I remember one time, um, this was, like I said, quite probably 2010 or something. We saw that Oprah had come on and we're like, oh my God, Oprah. It's like, we got to do everything possible, but we couldn't get there. you know. And there was like a time we actually had to get rid of Uber, who was one of our biggest customers, but they couldn't, they weren't, they didn't follow our structure. And we knew that, again, we can't spend the time on that one when we have millions of other customers. So I think that was one of the big things Mm -hmm. MailChimp really helped us is we knew how to say no. Was the revenue always vibrant enough, like velocity? It was, was, were were you guys always able to, um, make that a, 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 a financially manageable decision. I think, I think, uh, <laughs> MailChimp and, and Zapier, are, are like two phenomenally successful companies, um, for those that, that, that aren't yet on that kind of super normal growth rate, uh, just having the, the, the revenue to say no can be really difficult. 
Um, yes, later on in MailChimp, that was true. But early on, we had some of these big, like, what do we do? Like, and that's where we came to the point, like, no, we can't. We can't spend the time on this because if we do it for this person, then we have to do it for another person. It's like, we can't do that. That's, again, it's like, who, what are we doing? We're focusing on the small business customer. So this is out of our, this is out of our line. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it um, it's, uh, I think I think finding a way, and I think I think what it does is it forces the the business to go back and really understand the the core customer that it can build a scalable platform business on, and like it, and if you can't do that, then 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 um, maybe you need to you know find a different uh, find a different business model, perhaps. Um, right. I'm, I mean to tack on this. I mean this is this is so relevant because we just see this. With, I feel like m- many, if not most, startups deal with this exact challenge, and it's um, you know if you're going to have this product-led self-serve experience, and you have uh, an Uber that comes along asking for the world, what do you do? Because you've already made that commitment to you know be obsessed about your products, and you have a bunch of enterprise requirements that um, might hurt the experience. So um, there's always that like that crossroads, like which which way do right. we go? Do we say yes to Uber or do we continue to mm-hmm. be product obsessed? And and obviously when there's a big check that's sitting in front of you, it's it's a really yeah. you know it's it's really it's really really hard. So to hear that you know you you know at two very product obsessed companies that you've literally said no to some pretty big names, big marketing opportunities, check sizes, like that's, that's really, uh, you know, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I, guess Jenny, I think it was MailChimp. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm much more interested in what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, I mean, I really think that was one of the key things that really made MailChimp successful because we started early on and yeah, it was just like, we knew who our customer was and we stayed in that lane. And I think, they didn't later on. And I think that was probably part of the problem that happened. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I do, I see it all the time in people I talk to too. And I, it's so hard to do, but I, I really think that then you, you know, you always say you spend what 80% of your time on 20% of your customers. Like you don't want to do that. So they have to, they have to fit in, you know, what it is, what it is that you want and, you know, what your structure is for your customer and they have to stay within those lines. Otherwise, you know, you're just doing everything just for money. I think one of the um, curiosities that that I've um, been having is like, uh, as humans, like we're just wired to be very cyclical in nature. And so as we've seen product-led growth companies uh, like Mailchimp and Zapier and Slack and Calendly, um, there there is a, a a a rotation towards thinking with a very heavily PLG self serve uh, scale this uh, in a highly efficient manner. Um, like that 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 is that is that is very much an, an end, uh, uh, that is very much in style. I do wonder with some of the companies that I talk with is like is that really though the best version of your business idea? Like is the best version of this company, maybe something that does take those larger tickets. Like, is this possibly more of a cash flow um, project based, you know, great business to, to own, but like, does this need to be a scalable platform the way that other businesses have, have the routes that they've taken? 
like, I imagine that you've talked to people who, who, who kind of have to make that decision. What are the questions that you try and have them ask themselves? Are there scenarios where you've actually advised people away from a PLG self-serve uh, go-to-market? Well, I think it all depends on your product, right? I mean, for, for PLG to be successful and self-serve, it has to be super easy. And I actually think that was a little bit, we had the challenge at Zapier. It wasn't simple enough to really, I mean, it almost needs a little help or a little sales to get people to really understand it because automation, especially when we, when I first started there was pretty new to everybody. And it's like, people didn't understand it and they thought they were taking away jobs. It's like, no, this is just to help you do your work better. So I think it's really all about the product you have. And then, yeah. So does it need a sales motion or can you make it simple enough that it can be a self-serve PLG motion? Akash, did you want to, did you want to put your question in there? <clears throat> yeah, I was, um, you know, I was just reflecting um, on, I think, you know, if you look at some very traditional like developer first businesses, like, like uh, Slack and Twilio, um, they were also very similar to MailChimp and Zapier in that they generally avoided sales reps entirely. But um, what you see now happening is they're starting to int introduce sales reps at both of these companies because ultimately, as you just do so um, so remarkably well early on and just getting SMBs and mid-market, um, you know, selling with enterprise, enterprises do have, you know, large checks to pay. So um, it's just interesting to see that over time, they do eventually <laughs> hire sales reps and they do value sales. It's just you got to really think about what your motion is on that, what stage of the business what does successfully transitioning to an enterprise motion look like? Part of like what made Slack successful was, you know, once people start using it, they're like, oh my God, I got to have this. So it's like, and then other people they like, showed, it's like, we got to have this. So it's like everybody in the company needs Slack. And I think that's where like, you know, MailChimp and Zapier, them trying an up sales market it's harder because not everyone in the company needs MailChimp, just the marketers do, and maybe a few other people. Same with Zapier. I mean, there's a lot of areas within a company that they probably need to automate, but they don't really want to, or they're too scared of the tools. But everyone uses Slack. So it's kind of like an Asana too. It's like everybody in a company can use Asana. So I think it's like, again, it's back to the product. Is it something like, everybody in the company can use, then it's kind of like it goes viral. So with a company like uh, uh, Zapier, where it's a fairly small subset of an organization that's actually going to be hands on the, on the tool, does that end up meaning that you just, you just continue with that self-serve PLG motion? And if you get pulled into the enterprises, then you, 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 you take almost like a little bit more of a reactive approach to fostering that market. I mean, they're trying now to go, you know, they, they are hiring some, a couple of salespeople to try to go up market. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it, how it works. So yeah, I don't know. It's still, I think, again, it has to be, is the product, is there a place in enough places in a big company for it to be used? Yeah. So when, when you're, when you're trying to communicate the enterprise wide value, like that is, that is a really challenging, um, critical communication exercise. Like how, how have you as a buyer of software, like how have you thought about like what communication is effective 
for landing on your desk. And then kind of similarly related, like when you've looked at the communication exercises that, that of the companies that you've worked with, like what have you found is, is helpful, is important um, for like really nailing that, um, that, that message and, 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 and doing that in a way that uh, is much more time efficient than the way I've asked this question. Um, so you're asking like the, um, the communication of the salesperson to me or the communication of somebody within the company wanting to buy something when you're trying to art. Yeah. Like you, all of this is you're, we're, we're all trying to communicate to other, to, to, to current and potential customers that we have a really awesome solution for all sorts of problems that exist on that customer side. I think just any any learnings or opinions that you've built on what makes effective communication of of a of a, a, a aligning a product to a customer set um, that's kind of what I'm what I'm curious delivering a message that's being received the way that you want it to. Yeah, so one of my clients I'm working with right now, I'm helping them find a spend management solution, and it's really hard because a lot of them are very much alike. And I'm one that hates a sales pitch. So I like people that, you know, don't want to sell me the product. They want to teach me the product. They want to, you know, they want to show me what it can do for me. And I think a lot of it is just like, I wish more people would let you use the product and play with it. And they don't, they just show you a demo. Um, a lot of times what, where I'm getting my information from is like, I belong to a lot of CFO groups. So we talk about, you know, so some people are, talking about airbase some are talking about ramp it's like okay who who does you know who likes what for what reason so that's where i get a lot of my information from does there, do do any vendors navigate those groups well i mean is i, I don't know if there's any any they're not way there. that yeah i would i would think that, yeah yeah i suppose that's true yeah but the thing is if they get somebody if if you get you know a couple people in that group and the groups are you know 300 to 3,000 or 5,000 sometimes, if you get a few people in there and somebody asks that question, then you have these huge, you know, people that are salespeople just telling up, talking about this product. Is there anything that a company can do to like affect their uh, lot in, in, in terms of getting, getting that buy-in? Because you, like you're, those, those salespeople, those conversations are worth so much to an organization, like earning that reputation getting getting the conversation going being aware of what makes recommending a product really easy like I, I think about my job as principally like you know networking as a service and so I, I think a bunch about okay if I'm going to introduce A to B like how easy and fruitful of an introduction is that um, I think that there's like a self-awareness that 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 can can enable some of some of that uh, liquidity yeah, I mean, I think it's just the full circle of the customer experience. Like one of these companies I'm talking to, I've got some other rep from another from New York contacting me when I'm talking to a rep in California, and then both of them are emailing the founders of this company. And they're like, "What's going on? Who are these people?" So it's like, "Okay, that right there is a bad I have to explain to the founders what's going on." So right there, that's a bad experience. And then I think the other thing is salespeople promise too much. It's like, don't, don't overpromise what, what's going on and what the product can do. Cause again, that doesn't make me happy if I'm used, if I buy into you. 
So be honest what the features are and what the product can do now. And don't tell me something's going to be available next month when it's going to be actually six to eight months. So, uh, yeah, let people, uh, let people, you know, do, uh, don't just show, um, under promise over deliver, uh, make sure that your communication is, is coherent and, and, and tight as you're, as you're going into an organization, just blasting everybody at once is going to create like a really dissonant experience. Akash, you were going to ask a question and I kind of cut you off. Uh, yeah, no worries, Thomas. I mean, uh, I do want to reflect that. It sounds like thematically we've been pretty focused on, you know, which is awesome, on like the product-led growth and the self-service model. I think one thing that really interested me that you said, which um, earlier, which I'm, I'm really curious about, is you said today versus a long time ago, implementing self-service has gotten a lot cheaper. Is it purely mm -hmm. about the just the automation, the uh, all the vendor tools that are available these days, or is there is there something more to that that I might have just overlooked? When I was first at Mailchimp, I mean, like I said, there was very little in the cloud. You know, it's like oh, right, it's the cloud, yeah. we were using QuickBooks online, and people were like, "Wow, you know, you're using that." So I think it's just now it's like all these tools now are accessible, and you know, you mm -hmm. can be anywhere and use them. So like being now people being remote, it doesn't matter, right? Because all the tools are available. Right, so it's 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 really about the the huge shift of companies' tools moving yeah. to the cloud. Just the general software as a service space, where it's just mm -hmm. so quick to build a SaaS, launch self self service. That and um, I mean, obviously, the trailblazing work that Mailchimp and Xavier did. I mean, it's something that can be more commonplace today, and it's almost you almost want to question why there's a salesperson in the process. Yeah, and like when um, I first started Mailchimp, I mean, one of our biggest costs was hosting. Now, you know, hosting's like pennies, right? It's nothing. Right, because you have to pretty much go buy physical servers, I, I presume. Right. <laughs> and now you could spin up, spin down. Yeah. That's true. I imagine also scaling would have been uh, really interesting back then because, especially with your type of scale, like you you buy a bunch of hardware, hopefully to support a certain subset of users, but then a couple months later, you might have 10x users. So like, I imagine right. for both of your companies, or at least MailChimp pre-cloud, like that must have been a really hellish financial, some financial forecasting. Uh, it was. We Thankfully, we had an amazing um, head of DevOps that he was, yeah, he was always looking ahead and he was, he always kept me well informed, so it wasn't too bad, but yeah, that definitely happened. How have you found, you've been doing fractional CFO work, th this, this concept of forecasting revenue, um, it's really hard. What are, what are some of the practices that you find that are successful? I don't know if it's about finding the right answer or just having the right process, but yeah, what, 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 what sage advice would you have for what it means to, to forecast revenue in a pretty dynamic environment. So with MailChimp and Zapier, it's actually really easy or fairly easy because it's a, a subscription model and you know over 85% of the users were on subscription. So that was really easy to forecast. I mean, then it was just about new expansion and churn, which there were some, but the whole base was so big that it wasn't as hard. Um, one of the customers I'm working for right now, one of my clients is e-commerce and it's a 
that sells makeup online and it's all over the place. I can't, I've never had a place where I cannot forecast revenue, but it's all based on, you know, external factors and economics. So it's like, okay, so now it's like reading a lot of economic reports and consumer spending to figure out how to forecast. What are some of the questions or um, ways of prioritizing information and then like making, making decisions, purchasing, hiring, um, I know that at Zapier, um, in the early days of the pandemic, you guys had a temporary hit to your business. You've talked about like a, a five-step plan that you guys implemented. I mean, what are, what are some of the, what are, what are some of the pieces of advice? Um, uh, and I think, I think a lot about, it's like not, not any one thing, but it's about a system. It's about having like an OODA loop and observe, orient, decide, act. Um, like h- how were, how were some of those conversations going with the, the founders you're working with? Yeah, so I think it is. It's all about a plan, and there's like the best case, the worst case, you know, and what you think is going to happen, but it's always planning for the worst case. So you don't hire above the worst case, and you make sure your costs are in line. So, you know, if the worst case happens, you can still function for at least a couple years to hopefully get through whatever's going on. But yeah, that's kind of what we did at that year during the pandemic. It, we only it only lasted like a month for us with our revenue, but yeah, it's like let's stop everything right now. We don't know what's going to happen next, so like here's the plan, and let's just try and act like this is worst case, and then we'll see what happens. Does that does that mean that you kind of are in a persistent state of, I don't know, like operational pain? I mean, if if you if I think about my worst case scenario, and then I I hire to that plan, but then something better than that. Uh, comes together, or even honestly, like whether it's better than that, than that, or or, or not. Like I am in a state of um, uh, frugality from a from a from a people and 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 process perspective. That it just feels like that you're kind of always going to be in in something of a of a of a strained um, uh, environment or, or mindset when when you, when you haven't like allowed yourself to go and 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 add those expenses that are factoring in a better, uh, uh, growth scenario, but also like just make life maybe a little bit easier. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's definitely a fine balance there to figure out. And I think it, yeah, it all depends on what's going on in the economy, how the business is doing. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I didn't worry about it. You know, before COVID there was, you know, things were going great, but you know, since COVID there's a lot of different things going on. And I think that you always, you don't know what's coming next. So you have to, I think you have to plan more. It's like, I don't think it's right now. I don't think it's as much about acting as it is about planning and making sure you have everything in line. And like one of the companies I'm working with, it's like, don't stop hiring, but let's make sure every hire you're hiring is really needed right now. Yeah. And, and I think that like your, your insight, especially at Zapier on the hiring and the people side, um, you had, you had like, like the people side of the organization rolled up to you, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know what kind of title structure that, 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 that resulted, but can you, can you spend a minute just describing how that worked? I, I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, it's actually, I know people seem it's strange, but it's actually very common now for like HR to roll up into, um, CFOs. And I, I did it at, I built the people team at MailChimp to about 250 people. Um, and then we brought in somebody, but yeah, Zapier, um, I built it from zero to 600. When I was leaving, we hired a chief people officer, but I, I was the chief people officer. So 
um, yeah, I had just directors reporting to me. So yeah, I really helped build the, the whole people side and the culture there at Zapier. And thankfully, I had a very strong VP of finance who actually could handle all the accounting and finance stuff. And so in, in, in leading the people side of the organization, which makes sense, like the, the, the asset of, of all of these companies that we're talking about, and frankly, like every company, it, 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 is, it, is, it is the people. Um, did you end up instrumenting, I don't know, like ROI-based hiring frameworks or other financially informed ways of building the team and the culture that are kind of only uniquely um, possible when, when these two parts of the organization are, are, are merging at the top? Um, I think we did a lot more like analytics as far as like, you know, looking at people that are hired and then um, looking through them throughout the process and figuring out who are the most successful here and let's go hire more of those people. So I think it was a, a lot of analysis that way. Um, I think one of the big things that we do is like, again, it's like how to make your people better. So it's like training them. So it's like, I had a team of like six people that were just training and development. So it was really about let's train these people to be the best they can be. And that's training. Like, like, uh, like what, like what is training necessarily meaning? I guess is the, is the question. Oh yes. Yeah. So, um, of course, lots of manager training, how, you know, um, how to do performance reviews, you know, one-on-ones, all the different things with management. Then we did, um, we used Berkman, which was, more of a personality communication test with everybody. So it's learning people's work styles and how to communicate best with each other. Um, a lot of it was on communication, prioritization, um, accountability. So all the things that would make an employee the best they can be there. In my podcast, I like to ask a, a parting question, which is kind of on the personal side. And if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. But I love music. It's a it's a deep driving piece of my partner and I for for starting this little project. Um, and so I like to ask people, tell me about a song. And so um, I'll start with you, Akash. I'm going to put you on the on the on the um, on the hot seat first. Like, is there is there a song that means something to you? Would you mind Would you mind sharing a little bit of that before we leave today? Um, I. I was always a huge fan of uh, Piano Man. Um, it, it it just there's such a long story in that song. Uh, there's a start, a middle, and an end. And um, I also like played a lot of piano growing up, so it was just a fun song to play. So um, yeah, I, I definitely have to I'd have to say Piano Man. That is awesome. I I always. Um... I do these calls a lot of time before lunch and we've got four boys and I like to make lunch whenever I can. Favorite thing is to turn on the song that somebody recommends really loud uh, as I'm like making grilled cheese or whatever. <laughs> Piano Man is going to be is going to be awesome. Is going to be awesome here in a bit. Um, Jenny, would you mind sharing a song that you really enjoy? Sure. I love this question. Um, so I'd say my probably my favorite song is uh, September by Earth, Wind and Fire. Since it just makes me happy. Um, and then. I think the other one, I guess it means something to me is like, you know, life is like a series of ups and downs. So I love Kelly Clarkson's strong uh, song, Stronger. So it's like when there's tougher times, I just remember, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I love that. My dad is a huge Earth, Wind and Fire fan. So he's, he's especially going to appreciate that, that recommendation. Um, 
Guys, uh, Jenny, Akash, thank you guys so much for, for sharing some time on this Friday. Uh, Jenny, uh, hopefully um, you'll be open to maybe talking uh, again at some point in the future. I've, I've got um, some companies that would, would just really you know, benefit from, from talking to somebody like you. Um, would love to hear what you're working on in, in this uh, post-Zapier uh, quasi-retirement phase. Um, I hope you're having a lot of fun. I think you've got a tremendous amount of insight and 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 skill and i think it's just I'm, I'm i'm really happy that you're uh sharing that now with with the companies that you're working with i, th I think the world is a better place for it so I, I really really genuinely do appreciate you continuing to to do that and and, and sharing some of that with us today thank you so much oh, this, i really enjoyed it too and yeah i would be happy to talk to you or anyone else about any of this i'm, I'm happy to share so yeah this was very very fun thank you guys so much and have a great weekend Thank you. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an Unlimited Partners production. The show is edited and produced by Andrew Thomas, and our music was composed by Nick Samaska. If you'd like to receive more Unlimited Partners content, then please sign up for our private podcast feed. You can do that by visiting our website, up-pod.com. 